Welcome back to Footnotes, a history podcast focused on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side of history, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I'm joined here with my best friend, Kevin. So, in the start of spring of 1856, William Walker has a bit of a problem. He is the provisional military dictator of Nicaragua. There are currently three Nicaraguan governments, an exiled government in the United States, a rebel government, at least in William Walker's view, in uh, the northern of the Central American republics. Those same Central American republics, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, all have a unified army that are occupying the entire northern end of Nicaragua. Only a month before, or a few months before, the Costa Rican army, after defeating him in the Second Battle of Rivas, had to retreat simply because cholera beat them. William Walker's Nicaragua did not beat them. Yet at the same time in this chaos, Walker is receiving hundreds of men a day from steamers coming from the United States, coming from basically three locations. So they're coming from New York City, New Orleans, or San Francisco. And he's wholly dependent on these soldiers to come through to maintain his power. And at the same time, he knows that he has to keep that transit road open, which means he has to control the city of Rivas. Probably the town of Rivas is a better description. Otherwise, he completely loses his control and power. Now, he tries to do one thing in order to gain himself legitimacy in the eyes of the world, as well as the Nicaraguan people. Now, just earlier in the year, the Nicaraguans had elected Patricio Rivas as their actual president. He was the provisional president when they formed the peace treaty between the two rival factions in the end of the Civil War in October. Well, Rivas quite quickly defects, and he leaves the country, moves north, and he joins the rebel armies. Now, the fact that there are th the armies of all of these Central American republics are unified against Walker is a testament in terms of how unpopular he was. These are countries that were pretty much all fighting each other in about a year before are now completely unified to remove this guy, to the point where his president leaves. And that helps to show us just how unpopular he was at this point already in Nicaragua, that anyone who could have left that was of means and in power, they do. So what Walker does is he calls another election. He declares all the land to the north to be null and void. Their votes don't count. And he wins the election. Wins in quotes. It is pretty clear, at least from every source I've read, that it is, it is a fraudulent election. He didn't actually win. Walker himself in his book says about how, you know, touched he was that they voted for him. He just declare, declares how much the Nicaraguan people really wanted his peace and stability and just everything how, about how amazing he was. This may not be what you call a, quote, reliable source. No. And, you know, this is at the point in his book when you start to realize that he's really manipulating the source. But that's not surprising. This was a guy who was willing to just show up in a country and take it over. What's happening for Walker's support, as we've discussed earlier, is that he now has to combat the most powerful, rich, and stubbornly driven human being in the United States at this point, in the body of Cornelius Vanderbilt. And Vanderbilt's not only arming and supplying all of these other Central American countries to remove Walker so that he can get, take back that transit road, Vanderbilt wants the transit road back for himself. But he is now actively participating in the government of New York City, which is one of Walker's principal supplier soldiers. He's actively 
organizing the courts and the police force up there to prevent filibuster soldiers from leaving. Now, New York City had been a wonderful source of manpower. Basically, Walker's agents would, and many of his officers that were fighting in these battles, would take leave to go back to New York City and recruit soldiers. They would go to the poor districts, the dockside, and find unemployed men and sell them on the adventure. I mean, that kind of makes sense. If you're a, a poor dock worker with not a lot of means, with nothing really going for you but the perpetual unemployment cycle of 1850s New York, the idea that you could win riches and renown and potentially even get a plantation if you prove your worth... I think you can see the reason why some of these guys went out to do this. No one goes to war with the expectation they're going to, expectation that they're going to get shot or die of cholera. I mean, if that's what he's promising these men with and they're still showing up to fight for him, then he is a more persuasive person than I think we give him credit for. But what's happening is these guys, these filibuster soldiers, are trying to leave to get on these boats, and Vanderbilt has the police in his pocket. They're finding the boats that are leaving to go to Nicaragua, or at least going in that direction, or are run by Morgan and Garrison's new steamboat company that had taken uh, Vanderbilt's company away from him. And they're not letting the guys on. In fact, they're arresting them. And they're throwing these guys in jail for long periods of time. They're fining them. They're doing all they can to prevent these filibuster soldiers, these young men, to get to Walker, knowing that if they can put a stranglehold on his resources. Now, in many cases, there are actual, like, dockside riots when people learn that the police are doing this they go up and they attack the police they, they attack the superintendent they do all these things but what's most important is Vanderbilt has more money and more power he basically organizes the entire northern culture over time to start to resist Walker now the reasons why the culture the northern culture starts to renege on their support for Walker has to come from probably the most important and disturbing aspects of William Walker's tenure as the now president of Nicaragua. In the summer, and up to about September of 1856, Walker is realizing that he's losing some support. He's losing the wars. He doesn't have the full support of Nicaragua. The country's in chaos. Many of his soldiers, particularly those that come from places like Texas, are just marauding into the countryside. Quite a few of his best officers are either sick or dead. He's losing control. He knows he needs more soldiers, but the soldiers he's getting now are a lot worse than the soldiers he had before. They're not as loyal. They're not there for the cause. They're there to go plunder Nicaragua and have some fun. So what he decides is he needs to find something to galvanize his support, to get people to come there and stay there for a reason. And of all things, he chooses slavery. Not a great, I mean, first impressions only, but like not the most compelling thing I've ever heard personally, but continue. And this is one of those hindsight is 2020, or in this case, 150 years ago, what was wrong with people. In 1856 in America, slavery was something that people argued for. Obviously, it's something that is so abhorrent to us now that we can't think of it in any sort of positive light. But you can actually go and find pamphlets that argue for slavery. And they use arguments that are very odd. Arguments that you would hear from a socialist. The fact that the life of a slave was better than the life of an unemployed dock worker in New York City. That was their kind of views. Walker is influenced by a man from New Orleans, French-born. I believe his last name is pronounced Soule, S-O-U-L-E. I think it's Soule. Well, this guy comes down to visit Walker as a strong supporter. And Soule was a previous filibuster supporter, including the really big um, and failed filibuster in Cuba 
uh, about five, six years before this, all these events happened. And he gets Walker's ear. He sits and talks with Walker for long periods of time, even though he's not there for a particularly long amount of time, there being Nicaragua. And he convinces Walker to legalize slavery. Not only legalize slavery, but he convinces Walker that his only way of gaining the support of Americans is to abandon the North, the Northern United States, which at this point is pretty aggressively abolitionist, or is at least abolitionist enough that that can persuade people to not support him. Soule tells Walker, ignore the North because they're already going to be turned by Vanderbilt against you. So get your soldiers from the South, get your support from the South. There's wealth, and they understand the same beliefs that you do. They want to establish an you know, old-school American Republican in that kind of guise of white paternalism, a plantation economy with a rich upper class and a variety of slaves. And this guy even tries to convince Walker to reestablish the slave trade. The slave trade had been banned by France and Britain about 20 years previously in the 1830s at immense cost to them, but they did it for more or less moral reasons. You can research that more if you want to see why. It's very fascinating. It was never, ever, ever going to be reinstated, the slave trade. But at this point, no one really wants to bring their slaves anyway. It's already a contentious political issue. The Civil War breaks out within five years. But Walker doubles down on this idea, I think because he's desperate. I think he realizes he's got armies to the north, he's got an army to the south, his soldiers are no longer as dependable as they were. There are skirmishes happening between American, you know, filibuster soldiers and a variety of Central American nations where it's no longer five to six times more Central Americans against Walker. It's now 100 Costa Ricans fighting 100 Americans. And the Costa Ricans are winning. The Allied armies, when I'm, I'm going to use that term a lot, the Allied armies I now mean are Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. They're in the north, and the Costa Ricans are kind of separate, but they're called, I'll call them the, the Allied armies. The Allied armies are much larger than his, but they have miniballs. They have rifles, because Vanderbilt had more money than Walker did, and he was able to fund them, as I've said before. But Walker, if you read his biography, The War in Nicaragua, which he wrote in 1860, he writes a chapter that's all about why he revoked the Nicaraguan charter against slavery. Nicaragua's had banned slavery about 20 years, 20, 30 years before. And he is very explicit about the fact that he thinks that he and his culture is simply superior in every way, classic racism, compared to the native Nicaraguans. And this is a belief he holds right before the defeat and oust him. Exactly. Fair enough. And what's Point most disproven. And what's most frustrating about this is there is clear evidence that he was not a proponent of slavery in his early life. There's clear evidence that when he first started being a newspaper editor, that he had fought for the same kind of free soil abolitionism that like Abraham Lincoln believed in. The idea that slavery is likely to remain in areas where slavery exists, however, it should not be spread more into any new territories. It, is, it was a compromise view, which is pretty common for somebody from a border state like Tennessee. So his entire life, you have this guy who is at the very best lukewarm about the concept. But once he's presented with a desperate situation and a guy who is arguing with him and explaining to him, Sule is who I'm talking about, like the red devil on the shoulder, go for it. This is your opportunity. It's the only way for you to get support from people. Look, it worked in Texas 20 years ago. Why can't it work for you? Why can't you create your own Texas? Nothing comes of it, except for some rather 
upsetting laws for the Nicaraguans. He passes what are called, um, you can think of them as laws of peonage. Basically, he says that if someone is not engaged in active industry, they do not have a job or they ha or have been caught being unemployed for too long, they will be arrested. And they will be arrested and turned into a peon, which is basically a slave with like two more rights. Okay, seems like we're splitting some hairs there. Exactly. I'm just using the words they use. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He is actively enslaving the Nicaraguans. He has already confiscated hundreds of plantations from dozens of families, and he's promising these to rich American plantation owners. And now he's establishing laws to create chain gangs. Basically, you can think of these, these laws as turning them into peons or serfs, which they do have, they do have rights. They do have like due process and things like that these people would. They would just be treated as criminals. That's why it is a little different. These, aren't, these wouldn't be chattel slaves. But functionally, if you are a Nicaraguan, it doesn't matter if you've been a Nicaraguan peasant, you're kind of used to being treated poorly, even by whoever's in charge. You're not going to look highly upon this. So his previous, and by previous, I mean like eight months ago, support from the populace because he had ended the Civil War, is rapidly eroding. His men are terrorizing the countryside, and they're doing it more and more as the war goes worse and worse. But you have this guy who's actively telling you that you are less than human, that your culture is old and decadent. And yet taking all of the like land and giving it to old, decadent Americans coming down to just further destabilize you. Exactly. Not the most compelling argument. And yet when Walker talks about this, he talks as if he is the savior of Nicaragua, that the previous culture, which had been all civil war and chaos, and it had been rough for a while, needed to be fixed by his perfection. And it's unbelievable to think that someone can be that arrogant until you read the fact that this is happening all over the planet from European and American, mostly European at this point, imperialists. This is the same argument you will hear for the next 60 to 150 years, depending on how you want to view the West's presence in the East or the South or whatever, anywhere other than Europe. The basic result here is that now you have a very motivated group of people, basically everybody that isn't a filibuster soldier, to remove Walker. And the Allied armies begin to take a different approach. In their first war, which had ended in the spring of 1856, they were killing all filibuster soldiers on sight. They were fighting against the Americans to remove them and the American mercenary allies. The second war, which starts in the fall of 1856, the president of Costa Rica decides to take a different task, Cañas. He says, hey, I'm not fighting the filibusters. I'm not fighting the Nicaraguans. I'm fighting Walker. I want to remove Walker and I want to kill Walker. If, you, if we are fighting in a battle... He announces this early in the war, and we capture you as a filibuster soldier, we're going to give you a ticket home. Leave. Interesting. So the idea there is not like, if you are allied with Walker, your life depends on it. Now it's just, everyone's free to go. We're going to just kill or oust or whatever Walker, and everybody else goes like, oh, I don't have to die for any of this. Exactly. They don't want, they don't want to hurt me. They just want to hurt this one guy who seems like kind of a tool these days. You, you know, you get these guys being enticed to desert. Mm -hmm. Really early on, the Costa Ricans, led by some Americans, some Americans that had lost money when Walker uh, nationalized the charter for the transit company, they managed to attack Walker's rear guard, 
which is on the San Juan River at the coast. Now there's the San Juan River, the river that they would steamboat up to get to the lake and then cross the transit road. San Juan River is the border between Costa Rica and Nicaragua. And all the tributaries for that river flow in from Costa Rica. So it was the perfect invasion point for the Costa Ricans. The first invasion, they went on the other side of the mountain chain that all the rivers drained from. So they just they went around the river. Mm-hmm. This time they decide that's not the right tactic. Let's cut off Walker's supply of troops and supplies. We don't want him to have anything. Because if he gets locked up where he is, they can starve him to death, figuratively and literally, right? Well, Walker had a rear guard of troops that were not exactly um, aggressively defending their spot. A lot of them were sick. A lot of them were too busy raiding the countryside. Or what's probably more the case, they're probably all drunk all the time. That is a big problem when it, for Walker's men. What else do they have to do? And there's a couple of forts along the river, and the, the steamboats are going up and down the river. And while one steamboat is arriving from New York City with a, a lot of Walker's officers returning from leave, the Costa Rican army comes down on them in an ambush. They, they attack from a completely different direction from where they're expected to come from, and they, over time, take over the river. Not only do they take over the river, but they either cause the sinking of or commandeer Walker's main steamboats and gunships. They cut them off. There's a point where one of the steamboats comes into um, Virgin Bay, and there's a bunch of Walker's men in a garrison there, and they're shouting to the boat, you know, hello, hello, come come give us people and come give us supplies, and the boat turns and leaves. Hmm. And morale drops precipitously in Walker's army because they know once that's gone, it's gone. Now, Walker tries to get it back. He sends you know, contingents. They fight for a while. But in the end, they... they they don't. They don't have the power anymore. He still has about 1,000 men, but he's facing armies of five to 15,000 men scattered about in many different army groups. Now, one of the coolest stories that comes from this whole case was one of the officers, Walker's officers, who was ambushed and captured by the Costa Ricans. This guy was one of Walker's early supporters, and it gives you an idea of how much loyalty Walker had from his core group of men. The guy with his last name of Rogers. And what Rogers does is once he's captured, the Costa Ricans again tell them, you can either stay here and die of malaria or yellow fever or cholera, or you can leave. And they're not treated well, but a lot of the guys manage to get out. Well, Rogers, instead of leaving, he gets on a boat, goes around to Panama, and then he tries to get on a boat on the other side of Panama and find his way back up to Walker on the Pacific side because Walker's in the city of Granada on the Pacific side. Well, in order to do that, he gets in a rowboat and tells the guys on the rowboat he wants to get to one of the little islands off the coast of Panama. If you look at the coast of Panama, there's a bunch of little islands right off the Pacific side. And he, says, he, he told these two Panamanians, hey, I, just, I want to get to that little island where there's a trade depot. As soon as the guys get on the oars, he pulls out a pistol, points it at them, and says, row me to Nicaragua. It that takes commitment to the the cause or the bit i don't even know which one it is anymore it takes them three days to row it's a lot of rowing but imagine the guy with the gun if he sleeps they'll just kill him yeah so he has to stay awake with a gun on these guys for days just so he can get back to walker clearly walker could get royalty from people all of his soldiers are still dying in the cholera epidemic Men are showing up from San Francisco because that's really the only spot they can show up from now because the Atlantic side's cut off, and they immediately get sick and die. This isn't working for him. But there's a good quote here that just 
I think gives us a nice idea of really what Walker was all about. This is from Walker himself. In spite, however, of the sickness which prevailed among the Americans, their spirits were good and their hopes high. To the casual observer, the political elements appeared at rest, and all seemed more tranquil than at any time since the Treaty of the 23rd of October that ended the Nicaraguan Civil War. The common people, with their strong religious instinct, thought that Providence had sent the cholera in order to drive the Costa Ricans from the soil. The Americans, with that faith in themselves which has carried them in a wonderfully short period from one ocean to another, regarded their establishment in Nicaragua as fixed beyond the control of casualties. But to him who knows that great changes in states and societies are not wrought without long and severe labor, the difficulties of the Americans in Nicaragua might appear to be only beginning. To destroy an old political organization is a comparatively easy task, says Walker, (laughs) and little besides force is requisite for its accomplishment. But to build up and reconstitute society to gather the materials from the four quarters and construct them into a a harmonious whole fitted for the uses of new civilization requires more than force, more than even genius for the work, and agents which to complete it. Time and patience, as well as skill and labor, are needed for success, and they who undertake it must be willing to devote a lifetime to the work. So these guys arrive. He has, it's like he's not even delusional. Delusion would be like, it's easy. You just knock down the old one, build up the new one, bada bing, bada boom, that kind of thing. I'm assuming he says bada bing, bada boom, because of I picture him with like one of those big lapel, like lo- like large lapels on his shirt. Um, but it's like people who undertake stuff like this have delusions of grandeur about their capacity to accomplish things or just delusion about the work that is set out in front of you. And it's like he gets that, yeah, it's easy to knock something over. It's really, really hard to build something new. And yet... He keeps at it with everything conspiring against him. And he keeps giving speeches like this to his soldiers. As everything is conspiring against him, these soldiers are dying as they show up, and they they feel that they've been promised wealth and venture that they're just not getting. He constantly is calling back to these big ideas and to these men who are used to a life of hazard and risk that was a daily experience for them that we as modern Americans do not need to deal with. We don't worry about drinking the water for most of us. There are now areas that you can't drink the water in the United States as I say this. But we don't mostly need to worry about those. We don't have to fear that if a mosquito bites us, we might get malaria and die. Or if I break my arm, it'll get infected. If these guys get shot, they likely die of their wounds because of infection. That was so normal to them that him saying you're here as part of this greater cause, that apparently tugs on them. The loss of the sense of self and to join a greater whole. It doesn't really matter what they're fighting for sometimes, I think. The fact that they were fighting for something. But eventually the material reality, I think, starts to win. Over the course of the winter of 1856 and 1857, all of the armies start to attack Walker. And there's an instance where Walker sees an army led by the Hatruch brothers. Uh, the H sound is with an X, so it's X-A-T-R-U-C-H. Intimidating sounding name. It's a pretty cool name. Um, they are, if I remember correctly, Honduran, and they're the main leaders of the Allied army. They are Nicaraguan heroes, even though they're not Nicaraguan. But um, they are, they're even, their names are butchered by Nicaraguan Spanish in the stories because they're, they were, you know, ch- their names were chanted as they came into cities, but no one could say their names right. So they're 
there's all these different letters in the name. <laughs> but it's one of those things you're like, well, who cares? You know, they're, they're heroes. The Hatruch brothers are just moving fast to finally decide to attack. They're well-funded. They're actually organized. And um, when I say it like that, it's because just the previous decade, all of these different nations had been fighting each other. And that was a pretty constant turmoil in the Central Americas. But Walker unifies all of them, rather inversely. So they attack, and Walker, at one point, vacates a large city. The city's called Messiah. And he retreats because he thinks he's going to lose. And it's you can really see that he is not a very good military commander in this last war. Because by retreating from the city, he pulls a well-established, entrenched garrison out of the city and allows it to be occupied. Then he turns around and attacks the city. Does that that technically qualify as two steps back, one step forward? Yeah, I think that kind of (laughs) works. It's it's hard to understand why, and even his very apologetic biographer, Scroggs, who I've quoted a few times earlier, William Scroggs, he just lambasts him for this. We'll see in the Civil War in, you know, five to ten years in the future that an entrenched position at this point is, has too much firepower to be taken by a frontal assault. Already in the Second Battle of Revis, Walker tried a frontal assault, and it didn't work. He is outnumbered. He can't replace his soldiers. The Allied armies have kind of infinite soldiers. So playing defensively and just waiting for legitimacy even if he doesn't have all of Nicaragua, perhaps waiting until he can establish his own area and bring in more colonizers and last for a while, maybe that was an option. But I think he was obsessed with these glory-based attacks. He wants to arrive, conquer, and be the victor. Maybe for the propaganda war, maybe just for his own big head. There's less glory in defending a position as there is in taking it. Exactly. Especially at this time in history. The era of the attack dies in 1914 and the 19th century it was paramount attack is glory it's just courage and bravery and elan all those different things that are needed for a strong army his attack on messiah goes poorly he loses 100 men he only has hundreds of men those are huge casualties for him the simple thing is that he ends up having to retreat to the transit road because the as the armies close in from north and south If he loses that transit road, he has lost. So he walls himself up in the city of Rivas, which again is that little town on the transit road that can connect him to the Pacific Ocean, that can connect him to the Atlantic Ocean, so that if he can finally get a contingent of soldiers out and defeat the Costa Ricans, he can again keep going. But by early 1857, it is obvious that he has lost the support of most Americans. He has lost the support of the Nicaraguan countryside. He is losing militarily, mostly due to his own stupidity. He no longer has a functioning Atlantic Navy, which was like two or three boats in the first place, but he no longer controls any of them. He has lost all of the forts along the San Juan River, and he's lost control of Lake Nicaragua itself. His army is in a well-defended position in the city of Rivas, but he can't really get out. He's stuck. Now, the Allied armies decide to frontal assault the city multiple times, and they lose thousands of men in just attacking in wave after wave. But it becomes quite obvious that he's not going to withstand the siege. There's a couple of odd situations that happen during the siege. His soldiers start to desert. They start to leave. Because let's say you were a soldier who showed up in you know, mid-1856. All you've done is sit and 
watch people die of cholera. Maybe you went and fought one little skirmish. And now you're in, you know, in siege in the city, and you're forced to eat first the horses, then the mules, or sorry, first the mules, then the horses. And not only are you being forced to eat this, they lie to you about it because they know you're not going to like it. So these men are eating their old stocks of food, and then they learn that it's mule meat. And when they complain, they were told they've been eating it for three days. They subside off of chocolate and bananas because, ironically, those are the most widespread foodstuffs in Nicaragua. And by bananas, I mean more like plantains, which are the staple food for a Nicaraguan. The Nicaraguan soldiers were able to survive off of that really well. But to the Americans who were used to a meat-every-single-day kind of diet, that's not enough food. They're all starting to waste away. And as they start to waste away, they start to get sick. There was a few mango trees outside the town, and soldiers were told to go get some mangoes because they need something else in their diet. Pretty much all the soldiers desert on their way out. Over and <laughs> over again, his army just starts to vanish. Lying about, I'm going out for mangoes. I'll be back in, I'll be back in an hour. Exactly. Vanish. And then at night, allied troops or formerly deserted soldiers will come up to the side of the adobe walls that form as the big fort that they're in, basically. And they like whisper through the gun holes, hey, hey, they're promising you this. Hey, if you leave tonight, you'll get a ticket and you'll get, you know, some food. You know, they have beer. I mean, that would work for me. I'm in. Yeah. I am in. So he loses a huge portion of his army. I see. It's estimated he loses about a third of his army to desertion. There's really no end in sight to this. There's no end in sight to this siege. The third, fourth, and fifth battles of Rivas happen during this siege, which are all huge defeats for the Allied army. He wins the battles rather handedly. And the ending of William Walker's tenure as president of Nicaragua or as it says in most sources, the usurper of Nicaragua, comes from the U.S. Navy. It had become fairly obvious that American citizens who had been participating in this charade were in danger. There were women and children there. There were some families there. Um, there were people who were trying to cross the transit who were stuck. And the American Navy shows up, led by um, a captain, but this Navy, naval captain basically stretches his orders to solve the problem of Walker in Nicaragua. Already the Allied armies have said, just leave. We don't want to kill you. We don't want to mutilate you. We don't want to imprison you. We don't want to hang all the wounded prisoners. We did that in the previous war. I think they were warranted to fight rather brutally. This time, no. They saw an opportunity to get these soldiers out. And now this U.S. naval captain says, oh, I got a big boat. I got the supplies to get them out. The naval captain brings together Kanyas. He brings together Walker. So Kanyas was the main leader of the Costa Ricans who were really in charge. Brings together Walker and Kanyas, and they discuss. They declare a truce, and even the Walker kind of tries to prevent it, prevent himself from being kicked out of the country. He tries to maintain as much power as possible. They basically put their foot down and say, it's unconditional surrender or nothing. Or we're just going to wait till you'll starve to death and we kill you. And what ends up happening is... A lot of the men are stuck there for a while. A lot of death happens due to malnutrition and disease while they're figuring out how to get them away. They start to load them into troop transports and send them back. But before that all happens, Walker had somehow managed to get them to fight in the city for months of siege. Even during this, during this aggressive siege campaign, he managed to keep two-thirds of his sick and dying and malnourished soldiers on his side. And before I finish with what Walker does to leave. There's a great quote that just really summarizes Walker's personality and 
ability to get loyalty from people. It's during this siege. I don't want to move on before I read this one, okay? This comes from Scroggs, his main biographer. While Walker had some serious defects as a commander, the fact that he could keep his men faithful without other pay than the bare means of subsistence and prevent serious murmuring during months of enforced idleness is ample proof that he possessed some sort of military ability. He relied almost wholly upon himself, rarely seeking advice, and was constantly engaged from 6 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. His only relaxation while in Granada, which is a little before this, was a horseback ride in the afternoon with an orderly always following him. All his men yielded ready obedience, and while they complained at times of his utter indifference to human suffering, they felt that there was no one else to take his place and conceded to him absolute authority. So contextually there, you've got with the people who don't desert, which is clearly a majority, which is significant, what what do you think it is about Walker that beyond just kind of the the intangible X factorness of it all of the like, oh, he has these like gray eyes and he rarely speaks. And so when he does, you listen, it's like, was there solidarity? Was he, was he suffering along with them when, when, when his men ate mule, he ate mule. You look at somebody like this and so often when you hear these stories of dictators or these kind of person, self-styled anti-hero types leading men, you, you often see them living better than the people that they lord over. Do we, I mean, do we, do we know? Do we not know? We can cut this out if we don't know. <laughs> From my understanding, he lived a very austere life by choice, and he kind of always had. So though I do not believe he is dealing with the same bare level of subsistence at his, as his men, he didn't drink. He didn't eat a lot. He didn't really do anything like that in the first place. So he's able to be this pinnacle of self-discipline and then have these big ideas and have those leadership qualities and those haunting eyes and that X factor. And he was an aggressive participant in all the battles. There's a point where he gets saved by, you know, the classic, he had something in his um, pocket Mm -hmm. and he gets saved by the bullet hitting him, but not actually hitting him. So he was there on the front lines with them. So they see camaraderie in him. Even though he's outside of or other to them by way of sobriety and a lot of other things that were just disciplines that his men lacked entirely, he still they still saw him as as being with them in the situations where you would look around and go, well, why isn't he doing this? But he's there. He's there in the, he's there in the moments that count. I think there's also a link to his inner circle. So in all of these texts I've read there's constant mention of how utterly devoted his core group of followers, all the officers who were actually doing the day-to-day leading of the men, how devoted they were to him. They're like his acolytes. I think if you're a basic soldier and you see that your lieutenant or major, whatever made-up title he gave these guys, is just like completely supportive of this leader who acts in a way that is so plainly intended to make him seem above everybody he just acted as if he was and honestly that's usually enough just for the job you want exactly (laughs) that's usually enough to give people support you know fake it till you make it i don't think he was faking i mean if you can fake your way into president of a country in his 28 we can't go down that one we can't go down that one (laughs) (laughs) so what ends up happening 
is when this naval captain arrives and he basically is able to broker the peace treaty, um, free passage away to gain, give Nicaragua back its, you know, self-legitimacy. Walker, he makes a big show to have all of his swords and pistols for his officers maintained. So they all get their swords and pistols, which that's something very 19th century that I've never quite understood. There's a symbolism there that's, I think, been lost in modern history, mostly because we don't really use swords. And Walker gives a speech. It's very short. But he says that, he says in his speech to his soldiers that they were reduced to their present position by the cowardice of some, the incapacity of others, and the treachery of many. But that the army has yet written a page of American history which it is impossible to forget or erase. From the future, if not from the present, we may expect just judgment. Judgment with a capital J. He does not think that he will be looked upon in history negatively. He does not think that his story is over. He does not think that filibuster campaigns will fail. And he thinks that he only lost because he was abandoned by some of his officers in certain battles. The Nicaraguan people didn't see that he was there to save them from their own decadent ways. He didn't see how he could be a footnote in history. He didn't see it. And then he gets on a boat as the first person to leave Nicaragua. He leaves behind all his soldiers and travels back to California, sets himself back up in Marysville, and goes back to editing a newspaper. The end. <laughs> I'm kidding. But think about it. After all of that, after those months of starvation, he leaves. He gives them that little speech and leaves. And they are all forced to wait and wait and wait, sometimes dive cholera on the way, before they get to find their way back. This is the one thing he was criticized the most for in the American press. They said he had abandoned his men. In the end, he probably was just kind of done and he wanted to leave, but so did all his men. And that's the end of William Walker's campaign in Nicaragua. To give you the simplest summation of what happens in the rest of his life, this is um, in 1857, I think it's April 1857 when he leaves Nicaragua. So he was only there in the country for uh, 23 months. He shows up in May of 1855, and he gets kicked out in April of 1857. He maintains his newspaper editing job up in Marysville. But by 1860, his restlessness had returned, and he is invited by some colonists, some white colonists in Honduras, to try to start a filibuster campaign in Honduras. So he travels down to Honduras. He's immediately captured <laughs> by, um, I believe it's the British Navy, who instead of just kicking him right back, for reasons we still don't know, they give him to the Hondurans. The Hondurans put him, up, put him up against a wall and shoot him. And he dies about a month before the Civil War begins. Or about a, a little bit before the Civil War begins in 1860, age 37. He did all of this when he was like 32, 33 years old. And now I'm wondering, what kind of man was William Walker? What kind of man should we think of him as? After being told this story, after editorializing him a bit already, what is his legacy? Oh, man. Okay. Uh, <laughs> how do you even start that, that, that section? It's like the word uh, egotistical comes to mind. Self-important, self-aggrandizing for sure. We talked about this a little bit uh, earlier in this, in this story. Uh, the idea of the most effective villain thinks he's the hero and has motivations that make sense, or at the very least, make sense to them and follow a logical path. And 
all of these things are are things that can be said of William Walker. He he had a lot of very respectable jobs in the U.S. He wasn't one of the rabble rousing alcoholic pirates that can't, that comes down like bored mercenaries from the U.S. He's not somebody who had nothing going for him and chose a life of adventure to pay the bills or die trying. He was successful at all the things he had done. And then he throws caution to the wind so much so that it's like, there are points in the story where you just feel like he's trying to push his luck as hard as he possibly can. Go big or go home. Go big or go home. And then once you're home, go back to going big. It's almost like he's a gambling addict. He's addicted to that desire to just take that huge risk the teetotaling junkie <laughs> yeah a little bit he's he's like famously known as a austere teetotaler mm-hmm. there's one instance of his entire two-year stint in nicaragua where he laughs one and it's mentioned because of the rarity and it's because someone called him after he became provisional dictator basically someone at the the banquet when he's he's actually sipping some wine and everyone else is wasted one of his main officers gets up and says, here's to Uncle Billy. And no one knows who they're talking about <laughs> until Walker starts to laugh. Because no one had ever thought of calling the guy Uncle Billy. Right. Because that's way too pleasant of a term for him. But I think it's to go full circle. This was a time when people lived shorter lives with more inherent risk, where the desire to conquer and make one's own was so embedded into the psyche of Americans who were enthralled with that concept of manifest destiny that you're going to get that small few who take it to the extreme. This is the expansion of the United States culturally, geographically, materially at its greatest extent to the point where it was like filling up a cup and it overflows. This is the overflowing of American history american culture into another place in a bizarre way makes me think that certain events in history can only happen at certain times i think this is one of them filibustering lasts for about 10 to 15 years where you have enough energy and enough young people who are trying to move across the country and need something to do with the same time they have this belief that their culture and their society is so much superior to everyone around them which we now look back upon mockery and horror because in the end i think william walker was a little ridiculous to think that you can arrive with 52 men conquer a nation and establish your own version of american democracy but in terms of a dictatorship with all those contradictions with all those risks it was foolhardy and i think it was his intangible leadership skills Definitely not his military skills, but his intangible leadership skills that allowed that to continue for as long as it did and provide such an interesting story. Thank you for joining us on this three-part series about William Walker. To read more about his life and the story that we just covered, you can pick up the book that we used as our primary source by clicking the link in our show notes. Also, we have a Facebook group where you can join in on a discussion about this episode or any of the other episodes that we cover in the future. Finally, if you've got the time, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on iTunes. It'll really help us out. Until next time, take care.